We always joke that no one ever looks up, and it's true that we usually exist on, on one plane in three dimensions, but there's a whole world above our heads and below our feet. And it was really fun to look at a building. I still do this now. I look at a building and I think, that's funny. It looks like there's sort of a space there behind that wall that's not part of that classroom. I wonder what's there. Hello, and welcome to the Hacker Next Door podcast, where we explore the origin stories, exploits, and everyday lives of real-world hackers. I'm your host, Jeremy N. Smith, and this series is my chance to challenge stereotypes and examine the human side of this extraordinary activity and profession, who hackers really are, and how hacking really works. My guest today is Liana LaRoe, a veteran of one of the world's oldest hacking traditions, so-called roof and tunnel hacking at MIT. She's also an industrial fire and light artist at Burning Man and an assistant professor of bioengineering at UC Berkeley, which means she's hacked everything from elevator shafts to the human genome. I asked her to speak with me at the suggestion of her former MIT classmate, Alien, the hacker protagonist of my book, Breaking and Entering, and because I wanted to understand hacking's little-known origins and what motivates and inspires non-computer hackers, plus the diverse ways they can create mind-blowing art. Liana supplied that and more with grace and candor. Listen to her a minute, and you'll be impressed by how level-headed she is. Listen for another minute, and you'll realize how cool it would have been to be a classmate of hers, or how cool it could be now to be one of her students. Welcome to the podcast, Liana. Thanks. Hacking at MIT predates the invention of computers. What is a roof and tunnel hacker? Roof and tunnel hackers are people who are really curious about what's around them, and they want to get to places that maybe most people don't go and maybe you're not supposed to be. So these are physical spaces? Yeah, physical spaces. And there's also a side of it that involves maybe accessorizing those spaces by putting interesting pranks or interesting objects where people wouldn't expect them. How old is this tradition and how did you discover or get recruited to do it? I mean, it's decades old. I really don't know when it started, but I know that it's been a huge tradition at MIT for for generations. And when I got to MIT as a freshman, the very first thing I did during orientation week was go on an orange tour. And that's an unauthorized, off-limits tour of campus that goes to rooftops and sub-basements and steam tunnels. And many freshmen are taken on these tours. And so I stumbled into this and I was completely hooked. Why is it called an orange tour? I think when they started, the, the tour guides, so that they were easily visible, wore orange jumpsuits that somebody had gotten from the Howard Johnson's chain. <laughs> and those orange jumpsuits were really visible at a distance. And so the freshmen knew to follow the people in orange. But eventually this caused a problem because, unfortunately, the campus police also knew to follow the people in orange. And so after it became clear that the orange marked you as the person in charge, they switched to wearing all black to blend in a lot better. If you do this activity, is it public, like being on the school newspaper or soccer team, or do individual participants generally remain anonymous outside the group? It's anonymous, and it's pretty secretive. So we're doing things that are technically illegal, although really not super illegal in the context, but it's anonymous because we're not supposed to be there. And it's also anonymous because there's a big tradition of really not taking a lot of credit for your accomplishments. It's supposed to be these anonymous groups working in the background, not things that you put on your resume. So I want to try to picture this. I mean, even if the hackers themselves are generally anonymous, the most famous hacks, at least, are, as you said, extremely clever pranks that other people can see. What are some examples of that? 
Well, I think the one that's probably the best known is the police car on top of the dome. So MIT has these two large stone domes on its main campus. And in the 90s, I think early 90s, hackers put what looked from a distance to be a completely accurate police car, complete with uh, flashing lights on top of the great dome. <laughs> and uh, how did they do that? Engineering. They did it in parts. They brought the car up in components and assembled it all up on the roof. And did they do this? They couldn't do this at daylight. So they have to be able to pick a lock. You have to be able to climb uh, up a ledge and onto a dome. You need to be able to disassemble and assemble a car in the dark carrying 50-pound backpacks. That probably took a little practice. What was the practice or prep you think for a job like that? Yeah. I mean, I wasn't there for that, but yeah, exactly what you described. I mean, there's a lot of moving pieces. There's a lot of things you have to figure out ahead of time. How are you going to get these bulky pieces up to the roof? Can they fit up through the, the hatch that gets there? Do they get pulled up the side of the building? And I think part of what makes hacking so much fun from the inside is figuring out these technical challenges. And part of what makes it so cool from the outside is looking at things that look like they might have been almost impossible to do. I mean, it sounds like a ship in a bottle, except it's a police car on a dome. It's like that times a million. You have to have this super ingenuity, but you also, I would think, just the man hours or woman hours would be immense for a, a hack like that. Absolutely. Yeah. I imagine that they prepared for months. I imagine that they had different people sorting out the different components, you know, solving each of these individual problems, testing out approaches. I know that the hacks I've been involved in were sometimes incredibly time consuming and involved really a, a lot of advanced planning. Is there an example of that that you can share from your own experience? Yeah, one of my favorites for a lot of reasons was when we made the elevators in the student center talk. <laughs> I'm listening. Okay, so we wanted to make the elevators talk whenever the elevator hit a floor, but we also didn't want to cause any problems with the elevators. It seemed like a big safety concern, so we didn't want to hack into the actual electronics controlling the elevator. And elevators in general are something that hackers are very, very careful about because they are actually very dangerous. And if I could go back in time, I might tell my younger self not to do this. But the idea was that instead of hacking into the elevator circuits, we would put a sensor on top of each elevator that would detect what floor it was on based on little patches that we had taped to the elevator shaft at different positions. And then when it detected the patch for, for instance, the third floor, it would say something witty. Now, the idea was pretty simple, but the implementation took a lot of work because we were not yet full-grown engineers. We were figuring a lot of things out as we went. So somebody designed a circuit board. This was before the days of Arduinos and, and microcontrollers that made this really easy. So somebody designed a circuit to play these little bits of sound when it got to each floor and set up the sensor circuit. And then other people figured out how to get on top of the elevators and how to adjust everything. And so to get the whole thing working, we did not use the best engineering processes in designing the circuit. And so I ended up spending two full nights sitting on top of an elevator, adjusting it so that it had the right sensitivity for every floor. I mean, I was going to say, even if you had the technology perfect, you still have to somehow get inside an elevator. And when I say inside an elevator, I guess I really mean inside and outside an elevator, inside an elevator shaft. Yeah, exactly. And, and that was the, the hard and sort of scary part. And you're 18, 19, 20, 21 years old. This is the kind of cohort that's yeah, doing this? Wow. Definitely. What was the kind of reaction and how long did it last that your installation was up? If you oh, it was, it was great. 
we didn't, we thought people would just interact with this as a, they'd get in the elevator, they'd hear it say something and get a little bit surprised and then go on with their day. But what actually happened is that people filled the elevators all day long, pushing every button to go to every floor and just riding up and down. Because they wanted to hear every response you had. They wanted to hear the whole thing. That's right. And and it was so gratifying to see that, to see people just getting this complete enjoyment out of it. But I think it probably only stayed up for about a day, um, maybe less. Usually the facilities crew is notified and comes and, and removes hacks. Sometimes hackers leave instructions for how to remove things safely because the last thing we want is for somebody to get hurt while they're doing their job cleaning up after us. It sounds almost like a Tibetan mandala, those elaborate designs in colored sand that take weeks or even months to kind of establish and at the end are just swept away to talk about the impermanence of existence. This is something similar in the sense that you do this thesis-worthy engineering project, and then it is sort of swept away, sometimes with your instructions and sometimes without them, often within just a few hours. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing is it means that the, the construction quality doesn't have to be something that can last forever. So we're not thinking about this circuit being used for years or, or this wooden thing holding together for years. But yeah, the things are really impermanent. And I guess we hope that things get seen by somebody before it's taken down, or at least that there's good photos that we can share later. You're the ultimate demoers. Yeah, exactly. Prototyping. It's all prototyping. The joke is that some students get so into this that roof and tunnel hacking becomes its own major, like math or computer science. Was that the case for you? Did you just focus on this one particular hack, or were you also exploring kind of day in, day out, building up the fundamental skills? Oh, this was definitely my priority, to the regret of some of my professors, I'm sure. It really became my, my main hobby and interest while I was on campus, and it was mostly a nighttime activity, which meant that I stayed up very late many nights and slept a lot during the day. What is interesting or addictive about the exploring itself? And what's the community of fellow hackers? Well, I've always really liked exploring things. I loved climbing trees when I was a kid. I like rock climbing. I like the sort of physical aspect of that. And I also like figuring out what's behind a wall, figuring out where the empty space is inside a building that isn't obvious from the outside. So there was a lot of interest in just exploring our environment. And some of that was in service of figuring out how you would get something onto a roof. But some of it was just for fun. And we spent a lot of nights finding little shafts that went up the inside of buildings or areas of sub-basements that, that you couldn't get to without squeezing through tiny little spaces. I was pretty tiny in college, and I could fit places that none of my friends could fit. So it sort of became a game to figure out who could get into these spaces. I love the idea that there's this college on the East Coast where students are doing these immense physical explorations. They're pushing the limits. They're risking their lives. And it's not West Point. It's MIT. Yeah. And, and we were also learning a lot intellectually alongside this in our classes. But the whole atmosphere was just so intense that it's like if you wanted to do something, you wanted to do it all the way. And there's this sort of graffiti-like thing called sign-ins, right, where you have a little mark that sort of shows where you've been. But unlike typical graffiti, a sign is not to be seen by the general public. You only sign in in a place that would be impressive to another hacker. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It's supposed to be something that no, no one would just stumble upon. Something that is, if you get somewhere and you think, wow, I'm the first person who made it in here, and then you see a sign-in and you realize someone was there before. 
So you build, but you don't take credit and you explore and you can't be seen. What do you make of the kind of anonymity of the activity? Is that a bonding thing for the people who do it, kind of like being in a Navy SEAL? Or is there something else that's going on that makes it a particularly group activity or at least anonymous activity? Yeah, I think there's a lot. One thing is that like I said, it was technically illegal, so we didn't want to get in trouble. But I Good think point. the bigger thing was, you know, first of all, these projects did require a group of people working together. And, and it was good to find the group of people who you really trusted, who you could really trust to, to hold your rope. But also, I think the anonymity helped counterbalance a sort of culture of one-upsmanship that it was a place that really valued being hardcore. And part of being hardcore was doing something that was harder or maybe even more dangerous than what other people had done. And I think that we tried to de-emphasize people's individual exploits so that people didn't get caught up in this sort of arms race of who was the coolest or who had done the most. I mean, of course, we knew whose sign-ins we were seeing often. We weren't totally anonymous within the group, but there wasn't a lot of going around bragging about how you had done this crazy, stupid thing. So what is the community of fellow hackers? Is there a meetup spot? How do you even know each other if this is happening in the dark or do you just find each other when you cross through the same steam tunnel or elevator shaft? It was, I would say back then, and this was a long time ago, and a lot of things have changed. Back then, it was, there was, there was a community that, that met up on Saturday nights. It was informal, but people knew where to find each other at the beginning of the evening, where by beginning of the evening, I, I mean midnight. And then the other nice thing is that people would come back from exploring by a sort of defined time, I think usually 3 a.m. And we knew that if people didn't return when we expected them, that maybe something had gone wrong and we should go try to figure out what was going on. Of course, nothing ever went really wrong, but it was at least good to know that someone knew where you were. I was lucky enough to have a group of, at the time, current MIT undergraduates take me on a tour like this. And we went through the steam tunnels and we went along some ledges. And indeed, I got on top of the dome. I didn't bring a police car or a telephone booth or anything like that with me. But the next day, you start, see, I saw the world differently. You know, you just don't see things at the sort of flatland of normal existence. Sidewalks almost look like narrowly defined paths and mazes. And I just kind of kept looking up and seeing, oh, what would it be like to be there? What would it, look, what would it be like to look down from there? Did you have that same alteration of perspective over time as you did this activity? Or is that just sort of a first timer's uh, adrenaline rush? Oh, no, that was definitely part of it. We always joke that no one ever looks up. And it's true that we usually exist on, on one plane in three dimensions, but there's a whole world above our heads and below our feet. And it was really fun to look at a building. I still do this now. I look at a building and I think that's funny. It looks like there's sort of a space there behind that wall that's not part of that classroom. I wonder what's there. Or you, you start noticing that there's all this infrastructure. I mean, cities are amazing because I grew up in a little rural town where, you know, there were telephone lines above ground and no source system. That, that was it. But when you're in a city, all of this infrastructure is hidden out of sight. And it's really fascinating thinking about it, how it all works. The first 100 pages of my book, Breaking and Entering, cover this scene in part. And researching it, I remember being impressed by how grown up MIT hackers seem compared to typical college students just sort of what they're taking on on a daily basis or for these elaborate hacks that sometimes other people see. At the same time, they're also taking enormous risks and students have gotten seriously hurt or you know, even died doing hacking. So I guess I wonder if looking back, do you feel that the rewards outweighed the risks? 
For me, they did, but it's definitely something I think about more now that I'm older. The story I was telling a few minutes ago about the elevator, that was actually one of the most dangerous things I've done in my life. And I think I would, I would really go back and tell myself and tell anyone who's interested in it that that's really stupid. Just don't do that. But at the same time, yeah. But at the same time, a lot of what we were doing was very careful. And I think it's a culture that really values safety. So when we're doing something, we're always thinking about, is this a safe way to do this stupid thing? What's the way that we can sort of reduce the risk the most? And people prepared a lot for things. I think that it is still pretty dangerous. And, and of course, that's why we're not supposed to do it. You graduate and get into serious academic science, but you also channel that hacker energy into building crazy industrial art. What are some of the pieces you've helped create and how do they connect to your earlier MIT hacking? Yeah, it was it was really great. You know, I had left MIT, I went to grad school at, at UC Berkeley, and I realized I was missing this sort of creativity and this sort of group effort to make something amazing. And then I stumbled into some um, Burning Man art projects that I'm, I'm in a group called Ardent Heavy Industries that is most famous for something they did before I met them. They made Dance Dance Immolation, which is the game Dance Dance Revolution, the, the arcade game where you sure. dance. But in this version, you wear a, a full aluminum coated proximity suit. And when you make mistakes, a flamethrower shoots you in the face. <laughs> this sounds like, uh, I don't know, James Bond, Austin Powers, something like that. Yep. Yeah. Well, so that was, I think it's in the Guinness Book of World Records as the world's hottest video game. But that was a few years before I met them. And then more recently, we've, we've done a few things I was just so excited to be part of. A few years ago, we did a piece called Straight Edge. And Straight Edge was a, an installation at Burning Man that was a three-mile-long, essentially a three-mile-long series of fence posts with LED lights that let you see the curvature of the Earth. So we know the Earth is round, but until you see it from space, you really just don't know that. And there's this effect called the overview effect where astronauts, the first time they look down at the Earth, they see it as this whole entity. It's a totally different perspective. And of course, we can't get that here on Earth without going to space, or so, is, so we thought, but we thought maybe we could at least do something that would help people see the scale. And so the idea was that we, we measured out this really long line of lights, and then we had one line of lights that followed the curve of the Earth, just like you would normally see as the flat surface. And then the other line of lights was a tangent to that. It was a straight line that sort of goes straight off of the surface of the Earth, and you could see how far those diverged. So over the three miles of this line, the difference was about five feet. So that's how much the Earth curves. It's like you invented, or not didn't invent, but made manifest non-Euclidean geometry almost. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was it was really you know we had no idea like how how much does the Earth curve in three miles. So it was I loved doing that, and I loved watching people interact with it and figure out what we were trying to show. And for people who don't know, how would you describe Burning Man in brief, if possible, and where does industrial light art fit in? Yeah, so Burning Man is is a big festival. It started as a gathering of of sort of free spirits and, and, and uh, like intense people. I mean, exactly, honestly, the type of people who turned out to be MIT hackers. When I was an undergrad over 20 years ago, a lot of my friends from MIT went to Burning Man back then when Burning Man was a tiny little thing. But it's now grown into a festival of about 80,000 people. So it's a temporary city. People come with only what they can carry in their car and they build up all of civilization by their own rules. We try to see how much of the outside world we can get rid of and, and how much of civilization gets reconstructed when you build a temporary city of 80,000 people for a week. 
And part of that is the art. So people really like to push the limits. It's in this desert in Nevada that's a totally flat, dry lake bed, nothing around for miles. So you can burn, you can set things on fire, you can do these incredible big fire art pieces without, without harm to anything. Nothing is going to catch on fire. And people have used that extreme environment to really do some amazing large-scale art installations. So you go from police car on the dome to city in the desert. Is there a connection you make between the hacks you did at MIT and hacking and the kind of art? Is it a form of hacking as you see it? Yeah, or maybe the hacks we pulled were a form of art. I think that both of them are inspired by trying to get people to look differently at the world around them. And with this whimsical, absurdist sensibility, that's just like, who expects to see a police car on top of a building? Who expects to see a video game that shoots you in the face with a flamethrower? <laughs> it sounds like if roof and tunnel hacking was its own major, this was its own PhD for you. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's one way to think about it. And it definitely felt like the sort of the grown up version in a way, because the resources we had were so much bigger for Burning Man art. I mean, the budget is a lot larger. The level of engineering is a lot more serious. The uh, the need for safety is a lot higher, because when you're working with something like, you know, flamethrowers, you really want to be safe in how you do it. And so there was a lot of appreciation for, for very serious engineering. And, and that really spoke to everything I had learned as a hacker at MIT. And on the upside, you don't have to do it in secret in the same way. You're not actually dodging campus police while you're setting this up. So it doesn't all have to happen between midnight and 3 a.m. Yeah, that, that makes the job a lot easier. Although we replace the need to do it secretly in the middle of the night with the need to do it in a hundred degree desert with no sanitation. I remember talking to a friend who went from wildlife biology to marine biology, and he talked about doing observations and experiments underwater. And he's like, everything we do would be extremely simple if it wasn't underwater. But because it's underwater, it's impossible. It takes forever. Yeah, I do feel like sometimes this is really just the art form of making your life as complicated as possible. <laughs> and actually, my, my art group, Ardent Heavy Industries, our, our motto is engineering solutions for problems that don't exist. Brilliant. So you're also, of course, a bioengineer. You lead a research lab. In layman's terms, what do you do? I try to understand how information is encoded in our genomes and then how that information specifies how life works. So you really are hacking the human genome. I am hacking the human genome. I'd say that I'm, I'm mostly focused on the, the reading side, not the writing side. But in a bioengineering department, there's definitely a lot of interest in how we can apply what we've learned with all of this basic science research into starting to maybe repair DNA mutations and disease or, or design new forms of microorganisms that can do specific things that we'd like them to do, like digest plastics. Whoa. Do you see your outside hacking as a totally separate interest, or does your experience at MIT and Burning Man inform and even help you in your work in the lab? I'd say the main thing it helps with is actually project management, team thinking, accomplishing big goals under pressure. Those have all turned out to be really valuable lessons. In terms of the actual content, what I did in, you know, over my, my scientific career has mostly been basic research that's a little bit less of the engineering mentality. But at the same time, now that I'm in an engineering department, I think that that hacker mentality, that engineer mentality is really what makes this the right home for me. Is that a community that you're still in contact with, in touch with? Do you still see the people you went hacking with and have they also 
gone to illustrious careers and this, that, and the other. Some of them, yeah. I mean, I, I well, they've all gone on to do interesting things. I'm not in contact with everyone. Moving to California for grad school a few years after college meant that I, I moved away from the MIT community that that tends to stay in Boston for a long time. But I've definitely stayed in touch with a lot of them. And in fact, my my partner of many years is somebody who I met on on Orange Tours. In fact, and. Uh, he is also a professor at, at Berkeley. So I'd say that that part of it has stuck with me for a very long time. So cool. How do people find you or your work online if they're interested? Well, my, my lab website is at larolab.org. But if you're interested in more about hacking, you can see a full gallery of anonymous hacks at the MIT IHTFP Hack Gallery, which I used to be a staff member for. So that's at hacks.mit.edu. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Liana. This is really fun. Thank you again to Liana LaRoe and all my amazing guests over the last 10 episodes. Thank you to Furniture for our theme music, and thank you for listening. Please rate, review, and share this podcast series with friends. And stay tuned to the end of this episode for one last bonus story from the hacker next door. Can you share a story of one more hack that you were part of that you really liked? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I was, that was the most fun and the most whimsical and also the most fun engineering wise was one year for commencement, the speaker was the head of NASA and we decided that we should welcome him in some way. And so we celebrated commencement by floating a, a helium blimp, free floating helium blimp over graduation. And then at a certain point, it released its payload of dozens of, of stuffed animal beavers with little MIT parachutes <laughs> that parachuted down on top of graduation. The beaver, and of course, being the mascot of MIT. The beaver is the mascot, nature's engineer. And it was just such an amazing moment seeing this whole thing work where remote control released the, the beavers. They floated down over the crowd and it was right at the end of graduation. And so people started seeing these, these little parachuting things coming down towards them and they started running to catch them. And, and unfortunately the wind caught them and they were drifting over Killian Court and into the Charles River. And there's a, there's a road there, Memorial Drive. And at first the police were trying to stop people from running across the road to catch the beavers, but eventually they gave up and they stopped traffic so that people could run to try to catch parachuting beavers at the end of graduation. And that was just such an amazing moment.